Welcome to the Pleasant Side Podcast, where students at Mount Pleasant Middle School of the Visual and Performing Arts interview an audio-video industry professionals. Today's guest is Craig Havenhurst from Roots Radio. Here is our host, Mr. Mike Mitchell. Welcome to another episode of the Pleasant Side Podcast. My name is Mike Mitchell. I'm the art director of Mount Pleasant Schools in historically rural Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. We are here with Mr. Harvey's audio-visual class, and we have a very special guest, Mr. Craig Habakhurst. You're gonna hear the students um, refer to him as Mr. Craig. They're not being disrespectful. He has said that that is his preference when working with younger audio-visual recording artists. Um, We are super excited. The kids are going to co-host this podcast today. Mr. Harvey, I'm gonna turn it over to you and all of your co-hosts to start asking Mr. Craig some questions. Mr. Craig, just thank you so very much for being here. Um, and we are just so excited that you're here. Michael, thank you. Hello, Mr. Craig. Uh, I have a question for you. Hey, Can you I'm please ready. tell us a little history of WMOT Radio? Absolutely. So WMOT Roots Radio is at 89.5 FM on the dial, a good old fashioned radio station and w and the current version of wmot roots radio was two different entities coming together wmot is a 50 year old radio station run and operated by middle tennessee state university in murfreesboro and it was started in 1969 as a voice for the community and an outlet for students and faculty at mtsu who wanted to present music to the campus and the community around. Over time, it evolved stylistically. For many years, it was a jazz radio station. And then in 2016, uh, over the course of 15 and 16, the the, uh, people who ran WMOT at MTSU were concerned about their the, the, the cost of the radio station and the ratings, and it, was, it, it didn't have much of an identity, and it needed to be reformed and rebuilt. And they came to us working at a company called Music City Roots, which is a, a show, uh, and it had run for about eight years. It was a live radio show presenting Nashville music for artists every week on Wednesday nights with an old-fashioned kind of radio variety hour. It was a lot like the, we thought of it as the uh, like the early Grand Old Opry, and we wanted to showcase uh, important up and coming and established musicians in the world that we call roots music and Americana, which has to do with American traditions that are folk, country, bluegrass, soul, rhythm and blues, and that's a whole world that is very much central to my life and living. It's what I report on. It's my specialty as a music reporter and cultural reporter is what we call Roots or Americana music. And we, we at Music City Roots worked with MTSU to put an, an Americana format radio station together. And we launched just over four years ago. And I took on the job as music news producer there. So we are a 50,000 uh, watt radio station on FM. We reach most of Middle Tennessee and we're a public radio station on the network called National Public Radio or NPR. And so we have a content sharing with them at the national level. And I think that's, that's the, that's the basics, but we're a, we're a local regional radio station with on a national network 
and we support Nashville's music community. So I have a question. Um, could you share with us some of your history? Sure. Um, I started out as a print journalist, a writer for newspapers and magazines. And that's what I wanted to do from the time I was basically in high school. I love people who can tell good stories and explain the world in the written word. And so that was what I thought I would do for my entire career. But that was the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s before the internet. When the internet came along in the 2000, and so my job, I went on various, I had various jobs, but mainly I reported in Washington, DC. I lived there for four years and I reported on politics and policy and how they make laws on Capitol Hill. And I, my, my specialty field was healthcare. So I wrote about healthcare, but all the time I was writing about healthcare for a living, I loved music and I was a fan and I was a player. I think you can see my guitar over my shoulder. Um, never been a professional musician, but I've always been an active amateur musician and a fan who just goes and I, I, I hoover up everything I can find. I want to listen to absolutely every kind of music in the world. I don't love all kinds of music, but I wanted to make sure I understood my, you know, what I liked and what I didn't. And I learned a lot about the history of music. And sometime around about 1998, I started to, I got the idea that I could write some freelance pieces about music while I did my job for a healthcare magazine. And so I submitted some stories uh, that I cooked up and lo and behold, I got some pieces sold and I started a relationship with a national newspaper and I would write a piece about every five or six weeks for them. And then I added uh, some other magazines. And before I knew it, I had, and then I moved to Nashville in, uh, in uh, 1996. So I was here in Music City and looking for good stories. And there were just so many. Um, but when a job came open at the Tennessean, the daily newspaper, I applied and first I got rejected. And then the job came open again and I got accepted. So there's a little lesson in sticking with it. But um, I worked for the Tennessean newspaper from 2000 to 2004. Uh, really great experience working again, all in print, all written news newspaper stories, a few, three or four stories a week and feature stories about artists, record reviews, concert reviews, business stories. Um, eventually to make this short, sorry, I'm going on so long, but the internet comes along and really changes the whole image of media, the whole job. Print became less uh, uh, affordable. For, it, be, it, it was harder to make a living doing just print journalism and writing for newspapers and magazines. So I added radio production skills and radio reporting. And I went to work as a freelancer for WPLN, uh, the public radio station in Nashville that does a lot of news. So I reported music stories for them I reported music stories for National Public Radio. And all the while I'm mixing and matching, plus I added video skills. So I did a lot of video work and documentary work, making films for clients and record companies. And I worked in every field from bluegrass to rock and roll to classical music. I worked for the Nashville Symphony as a freelancer, video producer, um, and had a real wide variety. And I was happy being a, a, a pretty wide ranging freelancer. And if you know what freelancing means, it means I don't have a full-time employer. I don't have a company that hires me, that pays me a paycheck on a predictable basis. Everything that I made, I had to go out and I had to go line up the work 
uh, and bill it and send invoices in and get paid one by one. And it's a bit of a pain, but it's, uh, it, it leads to a lot of professional freedom and flexibility with your time. But four years ago, I was able to talk my way into getting this full-time job for the, news, for the radio station, reporting news and hosting a talk show uh, that is on Sunday mornings and Monday nights called The String. And it's an interview show, which is probably what Mike told, Michael told you about. Um, so that's kind of the background. And so I've, I've been in all forms of media, production and writing. And so I consider myself today a writer-producer. I can make any kind of media happen and tell any kind of story any way you want it, on the web, photography, video, or audio. But I prefer the written word, written stories, and radio. Sorry, that was such a long answer. How big is a new music video works venue? We'd always been in a rented venue, a borrowed venue that we would go to every Wednesday. We had two different homes. When the second one was not able to be, uh, we could not make a financial deal anymore. We put the show on hold for a while and it's been a couple of years, but the people behind it, the owners decided the best plan was to build their own music venue. They are going to be building it soon in Madison, Tennessee. It is going to be a fairly large building, freestanding. It looks like a barn uh, and it will hold up to a thousand people. Typically a show might be five or 600 people, but on a big day, we could get up to a thousand people in there. And that's a pretty decent sized music venue for Nashville. One of the bigger ones, but not the biggest because we have the Ryman Auditorium, which holds 2,400 people, the famous Ryman. The Grand Ole Opry House holds 4,000 people and the Bridgestone Arena holds about 12,000 people. So we're just a good sized music hall. Okay, who's next? What made you become a journalist and an inter interviewer? What made me want to become a journalist and interviewer? Um, I would yes, say sir. the number one thing is uh, curiosity. That's my sort of the thing that's guided me all my life. The thing I wanted to cultivate was being curious about just about everything. And you might think, well, Craig, you are a specialist in music. So you're only curious about music. Well, the thing is, music is made by human beings who are expressing their stories and their emotions and their backgrounds. So one week I might be interviewing somebody about who might be a, a I recently interviewed a country singer who lives in the Montana Rocky Mountains and his a sixth generation Montana cattle farmer. So we were talking about the realities of living in the West and what it took, what kind of work it took to uh, do the family's business and how radical it was for him to step away from that family business and tradition to become a singer, country singer, but how he remains connected to the Western lifestyle. Then another interview I recently had was, and several I've had recently have been about um, mental health care and substance abuse and alcoholism and recovery from alcoholism and people taking charge of their lives to say, wow, I've got a problem and the therapy and the recovery they went through. So we wind up talking about all kinds of human stories, but the, but the core thing they all have in common is that they're music makers in one shape or another. But I wanted to be able to tell other people's stories 
And it seemed a lot more interesting to me than getting uh, put into a box where I was doing one specialty thing, whether it was some kind of science or uh, some kind of technology development or, or things like that. I, I loved a job where I could just ask questions all the time and then try to translate what I'd learned into easy to understand stories for other people. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Mr. Craig, what was the interview that made others start paying attention to you? Huh. So you never know where in your career as a journalist people start paying attention to you or not. Now, in this day and age, way un unlike when I started, the things you put on the web have metrics attached to them, numbers. You can count the number of views. You can count the number of times your podcast has been downloaded. I would urge every one of you to not get hung up on those numbers. I look at them, but I don't pay close attention to them. I don't try to worry about whether this story or that story got more views, but every now and again, you'll see one that does stand out, that people clearly were especially interested in. So I don't have a way of answering that specific question because I'm not a famous journalist nationally. I have a reputation in Nashville um, based on work in print and on two different radio stations and a blog that I keep and freelance articles I've written, but there's no way to know. There's just no way to know. But you do hope that people pay attention to you when you produce something just like a, an artist puts out a, a record or an author puts out a book. Uh, you know, you do want the public to notice and you, you try to promote it within reason, but you don't want to get hung up on who clicked like or who shared it and how many times because you, you drive yourself crazy. Mr. Kirk, what's the most challenging project you've worked on? Was that to Corey? I think I heard the question, what's the most challenging project that I've worked on? Was that right? Yes. That's an interesting question. Um, there's different kinds of challenging. Sometimes in my older life, I wound up facing stories that had a lot of detail about the about policy and law and the machinery of how government organizes things. And those came with challenges because you really had to understand the material and the details and be able to write them in your own words um, in a way that was accurate, most important, number one, factually accurate, fair to everybody who had a stake in the question. And that had its own challenges. More recently, the material that I cover, music and music making and music makers, you know, people are very eager by and large to talk about their new record and promote themselves. So it's not a challenge finding guests. I think that the challenge is coming up with imaginative ways of looking at the music environment and the music business to try to give readers insight into why they are, uh, why they're given the choices that they're given, why this, why some artists become famous and well-known while others who are great never do. 
And so I'm looking, I look for um, uh, unusual angles. I'd say one recent example of that was there's a thing every year called Record Store Day, which is a national and international promotion of the independent record stores that sell physical records in a era when most people listen to music streaming. And so, whereas we used to go to record stores to get new ideas and uh, seek out what was coming and look at the covers and hold things and, and, tr and tell us, you know, share stories with other people there. And it was a very social rich experience. Now you can sit at home and click and listen to all you want, which is cool to a point, but it's, 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 I wanted to encourage people to, or share this uh, story about the environment and the people that are trying to promote record buying because it's good for artists. They get paid better when you buy their record than when you stream their music way better. And it's a cultural thing. And I tried to find some creative ways to tell that story. The other challenge comes in telling audio stories, what we call radio or audio feature stories or radio documentaries. And where that, I, I, I might've pulled up a, a screenshot if I'd known, but what happens is when you start to pull together those features, you go and you do a lot of interviews in the field you gather a lot of sound from the situations that you're in, background sound, sound events, and you come back with a whole lot of digital audio that you put into your computer and you organize it and you make sure you understand what you've got. And then you begin to experiment with clips from the interviews you've done. And there's a long process of sifting down the sound bites that we wanna use. And then I will write a script where I will mix the audio bits, music samples, natural sound from the environment, what we call ambient or natural sound, my own voiceover. I have to write my own script. So then I record it into this mic, just like I'm recording this today. I edit that. Then there's a big complicated process of editing that into a coherent story and a coherent flow. What mix, how things mix together, taking the listener on a on a, an, a sound adventure and having them be with you. And that's the most interesting challenge. Those take hours and hours of work. My normal radio stories are come together quite easily. They're, they're quick edits with just two, maybe two elements or three elements. These are stories with dozens and dozens or hundreds of elements, but they're really satisfying to do. And uh, maybe I can send you guys the most recent example of one where I did a, uh, a feature about a, a whole music scene in the city of Asheville, North Carolina. And I uh, was proud of that, but that's, that's a challenge. So my question is, how many questions do you normally ask? Right, in an interview that would maybe say like 45 minutes long, I might, I, my interviews generally average 45 minutes for my radio show. Um, which, and I get to use in the final hour of radio, I typically am able to use about 33 to 35 minutes of their, of our actual conversation, because the rest of the hour is my, my narration, setting it up the music samples that I want to play from those artists. But I would say in a 45, it's, it really varies, but I would say in a 45 minute conversation, um, I'd, I'd like to make sure I'm asking at least a dozen or 20, you know, maybe 15 to 20 questions. 
but it's funny. Sometimes I'll look back at the conversation and when you guys are using audio in editing software and I have two stripes, I have my questions, I have me, and I have another stripe with them. And I can see where the, wh when I'm talking, it's a question and I can see them as an answer. And some, some musicians that I interview, um, love to talk on and on and on and maybe like me today where they just have lengthy answers and i if they're if they get repetitive i try to cut in and look for a brief breath where they or i want to try to turn the conversation in another direction or move on to another topic just the one of my biggest jobs as an interviewer is to keep it from getting slowed down and letting a subject repeat themselves or drone on and on so but then sometimes you'll you'll inter interview somebody who's just really fascinating and understands you know just is able to speak in long complete paragraphs and they are interesting and there's no reason to interrupt them so if i do an interview worth 10 questions it doesn't mean it's a bad interview and if i do an interview with 30 questions it doesn't mean it's a bad interview it depends on the situation and on how much the subject wants to volunteer and speak on and on but um so there's both styles what advice would you give to a young middle school student podcaster advice to a young podcaster well let's see i think it's to have a vision one is to listen to a lot of good podcasts Seek out the ones that are produced by national reputable news organizations um, like NPR or the New York Times. Or, and uh, it's not so much the source, it's the listening for podcasts that you know are well produced. The one that I think is the most amazing and one that's very hard to measure up to but is still inspiring is uh, Radiolab because it has so many edits in it. It's very complicated. Now there's other formats. My show is more, there's less edits, more natural conversation. But listen to a variety of visions so that you can get a vision of your own. You want to imagine the final result while you're producing. You want to understand, you want to listen to your head in your imagination and think, wow, do I want to start if it was my dream podcast, would it open with a human voice saying something important? Or would it open with natural sound, like a scene, like a railroad going by, or a, uh, a, a field with crickets or a sound of traffic? Do I want it to open that way? Do I want it to open with music? Do I want it to have a theme song like mine does? I have a theme music that I change about once a year that is the signature of the podcast week after week it's the same thing to give people a certainty and understand and expectations um you want to imagine if you want it to if you want to have a lot of conversation in the podcast meaning you hear the questioner and the answerer like my podcast is that way some podcasts you never hear the interviewer ask the question at all you only hear the host describe the situation and then there's a quote from a subject and then you're back to the host narration and then back to a quote from another subject and you bounces back and forth that way 
there's so many strategies. And so you want to go in knowing what your strategy and strategies are, um, because that's tells you to make, that shows you the list of things that you're going to need your audio elements to produce and edit the podcast at the end. So work toward a final, and of course you're going to make changes and adjustments along the way. You'll have surprises, but ask yourself seriously and decide what kind of podcast is this going to be? What are the various elements and what do I need? One of the things that I need every week that I sometimes forget until it's too late is a good digital copy of the album that I'm featuring in my show. If it's an album feature shows, most of the time it is. And because I can listen to those records streaming online, I get accustomed to that. I, I understand the record very well, but by the time I do the interview, but what happens if I get on Friday afternoon and I'm producing and I realize, Oh my gosh, I don't actually have wave files of these songs in my computer. And so I sometimes have to scramble. Sometimes I rip it off of a, off a CD right here in the computer. And sometimes I request it from the artist's publicist and record label and say, send me a digital copy of the, of the album so I have WAV files to edit into my piece. So that's a little bit of advice. Um, but listen, to, listen widely and read widely about the field of podcasting. What training did you take to get to where you are now? Training. Thank you. That was the word I was missing. Appreciate it. Good. What training did I, did I get? Um, so at the level of writing, I started taking actual writing classes in high school. And I did that through college. And then I took courses that were based on my not so much learning about, well, I guess I even took a, a writing class in graduate school. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a class that was specifically about teaching how to write, but, and you'll hear some people say, well, you can't teach people how to write. All you can do is show them and, and then improve the work that they do. But I don't believe that. There are definitely many, many principles of good writing that I learned in school. So I, I start with that. Then um, most, of the, most of my training in journalism comes from on the job training. You write, you report, you write, you report, and you learn as you go. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from the corrections you have to make um, for the record. And then, but then uh, the, the, in mid-career, the thing I did that was the most dramatic was I changed, was I got a mentor to teach me how to report and write for radio. And um, that was working with a local radio station whose news director needed new freelancers. She liked the way I write and wrote and told stories in print. And she worked with me to understand how to get quality audio. So the various steps, how to hold, where to hold a microphone. So I'm this close, not way back here. So that the final product is crystal clear. And then she showed me how to mix uh, ambient sound from the situation, how to make sure I got all of the ambient natural sound from any situation that I went to when I was reporting out in the field, various things, but it was, um, she worked closely with me over, a, you know, well, every story, but the first two and three stories, we went back over and over again. She kept pressing me. What have you left out? What are you missing? How can we make this tighter and shorter? How could you say this more quickly and with more punch, you know, instead of rambling around? And so I got that training. But other than that, it's been experience and on the job. All right. So what was something that was, um, 
surprising or awkward? Surprising and awkward. Um, little things come up all the time, but because you have to approach strangers, you're cold calling people, you're trying to get people to trust you. But I think that what comes to mind is, so the, I mentioned earlier the show Music City Roots. And as I said, it was a music variety program. And my role in that show as a producer and co-host was to interview the artists on stage live. Now, the interviews I do for my podcast now, my show, are all pre-taped. And so I can, I can ask a question again if it doesn't really, if I don't make myself clear. I can fix any kind of problems that comes up in the audio or if somebody coughs or if somebody says, I'd like to start that answer again, no problem. Well, at Music City Roots, we were on live radio between the sets of music, I would sit on a stool with a handheld microphone with the artist, they would have a microphone and they would send it over to me and we were on the air, we were on the web live and we were in front of hundreds and hundreds of people in the, in the hall. So we had to be able to first understand what we were saying so we had monitors so we could hear, that was important. If the, if the, monitors, if the monitors weren't working and the, in the, a kind of a, a hall environment, it could be very hard to hear what each other was saying on stage. That would create a situation where we had to really focus and, and lean in and solve that problem. But when it got, the only times that it was awkward were, were every now and then you get a musician who loves to play music, but they're really, really not good talkers. They're not communicative people. And they kind of sit there and they might be really clammy and, and they just might be really, they might get stage fright in the interview where they wouldn't get stage fright in performance. We found that was common, um, that mu musicians, they might've been interviewed, but they've been interviewed on the phone or they'd been interviewed in settings where they weren't on the spot. And sometimes they would tell me before we went up on stage, you know, I'm really nervous about the interview part. And my job was to tell them, oh man, this is just a conversation. This is, it's like you and me chatting uh, over breakfast and it's really gonna feel natural, trust me. And they would almost always tell me at the end that, that that's exactly what it felt like. My job was to cultivate an atmosphere where they were just like, they forgot that there was an audience out there. I would just try to get them to focus on me and, and my curiosity. And if I asked them a, the thing, or if you're doing that in a situation like that, the one way to kill the momentum of the show is to ask a really vague open-ended question that's hard for them to answer. If I say, tell me about your life, they'll be like, well, where, where do I start? What, I mean, I was born and, you know, that's not a good question for a seven minute interview in a live radio setting. And it's also bad to say, tell me about your new album because that puts them into some sort of autopilot. I wanna ask them something that's provocative, comfortable, and gives them a sense that, that, that they're in control of the situation. And um, we get through the awkwardness that way. Hello. Uh, Hi. If you were to interview anyone live or dead, who would it be? Oh, if I could interview anybody. So uh, that's a, that's, we do think about that because I make fantasy lists because I want to reach out to artists that, 
you know, are big deals in our world and who I've always wanted to talk to, you know, now, uh, one answer, one easy way to answer that would be, I'd like to interview like Bob Dylan, you know, one of the most absolute famous musicians of all time and a great hero of mine. Now the chances that I will ever get to interview Bob Dylan are about one in a thousand probably won't happen. Um, but when I think about somebody who I've wanted to interview for many years, um, and I think that maybe one day I will, I don't see why not, but that she's, she's, she doesn't live in the United States. Uh, and I suppose now in the Zoom era, it would be easier to get that interview. But I've always wanted to interview a woman named Evelyn Glennie. And I will send you the, her name and link uh, through Michael. Uh, because, And the reason I say that she's the person I'm most curious about as a music reporter is that she is a world famous percussionist who plays in classical settings most of the time she plays with symphony orchestras she plays the marimba she plays the snare drum she plays all of the percussion instruments and she is without a doubt the number one most famous percussionist on earth and she's stone cold deaf and she has been deaf since she was 11 years old when she got an inner ear infection and she lost her hearing well how is a woman able to go in front of a symphony orchestra or improvise with a jazz ensemble without being able to hear the, 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 the way we do? And the answer is that she hears in ways that we do, but we don't think about. She hears through the conductivity of the floor and she always, she always performs barefoot. She can feel most of their vibrations in the room through her feet. She feels vibrations through her skin and through her bones. And we all hear that way, but we're not conscious of it. And she is the subject of a documentary where a lot of this story was explained. And you can really see and feel and hear her talk about um, life as a deaf person and, and a deaf musician. And I've always wanted to ask her the number one question that I would, I've never seen her address is, do you understand or have a concept of loud? of too loud. What is, I know what too loud feels like for me. The volume's too high and it hurts my ears going in my ear holes and my eardrums and I would like to turn it down. But if you're not somebody that gets your sound through your ears and you get it through your skin and through other things, what does loudness mean to you? So there's my question for her and one day I'll ask it. Well, Mr. Craig, we have uh, thoroughly enjoyed talking with you today thanks eric uh, this has been a fun time uh you've given us a lot to think about and uh do you have anything else that you would like to share with us uh only that uh i'll be sending you my audio from this interview which i've been taping into my computer through this microphone the whole way through because in the current era of interviews by Zoom and by Google uh, Video, which I'm doing mostly uh, uh, because we can't get together in person. Um, we in radio do a thing called a tape sync interview, synchronizing tapes. I will ask my subject to record their voice on their end of a phone call or a Zoom call. I will record my voice and we'll both wear headphones like we're doing today. And then when I get, then I have them send me a mono file, I have them, my, my preference is 44 one kilohertz, 16 bit audio and mono. And then when I get their audio, I, get, I look at mine and I put them in the audio editing software 
And I just line them up and I listen to make sure that my ending into a question flows naturally into their answer and vice versa when they finish. And um, it is easy to do the sync. And then it sounds like we're both in a studio together. And uh, I want you all to hear what it sounds like, not through the coming through the compressed audio of the internet to your computers, but what it sounds like coming off the microphone into the audio software. And so you'll get a good quality recording. Awesome. Yeah, that was something we troubleshooted um, or troubleshot the last time we did a uh, podcast was the, uh, the internet compression and little artifacts you get from audio going over the internet. Uh, so Mr. Mitchell and I had even uh, tried to do some thinking around uh, doing some of this in the recording studio. Um, right. You can see our recording studio, Mr. If you can find Mr. Mitchell, if he's still here, uh, he's well, uh, he's actually in the recording studio. Well, there's so. a lot of tricks in. There's a lot of little techniques and tricks in this field, and once you learn them, you they become part of your life and second nature. You know. Yeah, there it is. You can see our. All right. You guys have good facilities. Take advantage of them. Yes, sir. We are blessed. We certainly are. Good. Well, so. it's great to meet everybody. Thanks for the good questions. Thank you, Mr. Craig. Everybody say bye and wave at Mr. Craig. Bye, Mr. Craig. So long, y'all. Fun to Bye. be with you.